Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a bi-weekly podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. I'm Taylor Sherman, and I'm here with Alex Dobranek. Are you ready, Alex? I'm ready. All right. What do we have up for today? Our guest today is Peter Koltak. Peter has worked in political communications for years and is currently chief of staff for U.S. congressman. He's an expert in how to create and fine-tune a candidate's message and has agreed to come on the show to walk us through some of the secrets of how ideas are crafted and why the right message can make or break a political campaign. All right. Well, thanks for having me. That's a very generous introduction, Alex. Peter and I have been friends for years and So I'm so glad that you um, decided to come on. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds like a lot of fun. I love what you guys are doing. So what do you think of the State of the Union? That is uh, a good question. So I think, um, you know, there was a lot of, in the run-up to the State of the Union, there was a lot of sort of media buzz and coverage about whether, you know, would Trump kind of turn it around? Would he really not act like himself and sort of play into the kind of erratic shoot-from-the-hip uh type of image, I guess, that he's you know built up over the years. Um, I think what we saw was he was certainly toned down. Um, his tone was calm. They tried their best, and he tried his best to seem something in the range of presidential, but the rhetoric really wasn't all that much different than what you've heard from him throughout his entire campaign and up through the first year of his presidency. Well, I'm wondering, you know, when, when you say that the rhetoric was toned down, I think that there's ways that someone can say something. And so what some people were saying was that he said it in a little bit of a different way. So we know that Trump's comments, for example, about the dreamers, right? Like all Americans are dreamers. Like that right there is a straight up hijack of a message. It's like all all lives matter. Yes, it absolutely is. And it was obviously very much done um, by design. And I think what you're seeing there is... Listen, like if you go and look into the opinion data, the dreamers are an interesting issue. And for any of your listeners who don't know, these are undocumented uh, immigrants who were brought here as children. So essentially had no control over the fact that they ended up here. Most of them have been here since they were kids. They grew up here. They don't really know any other country. Um, they've gone to school. They work. They were essentially given the opportunity to get legal protected status. Um, and there's been this ongoing battle about what what's the long-term permanent solution for these people. Uh, the dreamer narrative, the, these are immigrants. Not all immigrants are popular with the public at large. These are immigrants that are extremely popular with the public at large. Even Republicans don't really hold it against them that they didn't have any choice but to come here. But uh, the reason why you know Trump dropped that line is, I think, frankly, it was an attempt to sort of regain the narrative. 
these kids are a sympathetic face and the failure to kind of come to any um, resolution on them was a is, is a black mark on the first year of, of his presidency and it's a big issue and so I think by this all Americans or dreamers to uh, line that, that they dropped in there they're kind of trying to reframe the message in a in a way that doesn't make it look like essentially they've you failed to address a problem that is a pretty big concern to a vast majority of people so this is him talking to his base and saying you know what hey by the way we haven't really failed in this in this way is that is that what this is i think it's it, it's it's two things one it's you know the the idea of a dreamer I mean, just that word is very much tied into the idea of the American dream, which in a lot of respects is, you know, you can kind of come here from anywhere and make it. Uh, so it, it was doing two things. I think one, he's talking to his base and saying, you know, the kind of the same nativist rhetoric, like these dreamers, these immigrants, they aren't special. You're just as good as them. You're better than them. However, you know, his base wants to think about it. I think he's also trying to reframe the debate in the rest of the country uh, just to get away from, you know, so much focus on what is essentially a very, a very sympathetic group of young people who happen to be undocumented immigrants really through no fault of their own. Right. He's trying to take this sort of fringe um, ideal and push it into make it more palatable, like um, uh, so that the rest of the nations can get on board. But I think what's really important is that that kind of reframing of the debate really only works if you're consistent if you can um you know reframe it and then get everybody else on board with your reframing it's sort of like when we shifted from um what was it uh gun control to gun violence prevention it only works if you can get the entire um the entire community on board or, or what is it global warming into climate change um these sorts of reframings um and uh donald trump just doesn't have the um, the consistency and maybe the patience, um, to sort of stick to that. I don't know. What do you think? I think it will be tough. Um, I think that discipline is not his strong suit. And so I think that if that was a, a theme that they were intending to embark on in a big way, I mean, we're now over a week out from the state of the union and you haven't heard anybody use the line since. So it's not like they turned around and went on a full court, uh, full court press, on that where they were where that was constantly coming out of the white house and they had all their surrogates saying it and all that i mean it it seemed like it was a line that was you know designed to be clever um and you know maybe designed to try to help him sort of reframe things a little bit while also still speaking to his base but certainly you're not seeing the, the full court push behind it that you would expect to see if you really wanted to reframe the debate entirely towards um you know talking solely about this group of kids is somehow leaving out other people in the rest of the country. And he doesn't need to, right? Like there's, there's no need for him to actually say it in this huge or really full way. Um, you know, just, just starting to hint toward it and giving that image inside the mind, like, like you said, that idea of a word, a dreamer, right? Well, that goes right into the idea of the American dream. Right. And what is the American? See, I don't know. I think that that's maybe a, uh, a tough ground for him to, to to work on. Like, it sounds good on the surface. But then if you go a few layers deep on it, it's like, well, actually, America uh, was founded as a nation of immigrants. And so, you know, what, what's that all about? Yeah, I think, you know, this is this is the 
he he comes from and speaks to a base that is very nativist, very anti-immigrant. Uh, that's never going to change, and that sentiment isn't new to him. Like that sentiment has been around kind of throughout. I think you know, the country's entire history. There've been it, it it bubbles up at different times, um, maybe more aggressively than others. But there's always been. And I think a lot, and you know, this is not unique to the United States either. There's a lot of countries out there uh, that just have generally, there's always a sect of people that have anti-immigrant attitudes. The hard part is that so much of the sort of American psyche, American narrative, American dream story, which is essentially, I think, like kind of the, it's the American myth, for lack of a better term. I don't mean myth in the sense that it's not true. I just think in terms of kind of the greater mythology of the United States, um, it's this concept of people can come here from anywhere and make it. And, you know, it's everything from the poem that's chiseled onto the Statue of Liberty to sort of what they teach kids in school and elementary school. And so, you know, trying to reframe this debate as like, as, as shift away from immigrants being part of the American dream, there's certainly a part of, you know, a segment of the country, and I don't know exactly how big it is, that very much buys into that nativist rhetoric. But I think there's a pretty broad cross-section of everybody else who doesn't really think that. And that's that's really brilliant, you know, that you're talking about this idea of the American mythology. And, you know, when, again, when we're talking about mythology, we're not necessarily talking about something that is um, not real or simply made up. But isn't it true that mythologies can kind of be, well, some of them we learned, for example, when we were in school, you know, we grow up and, and you learn it through the, the history books. But there are other mythologies that can be uh, created that, you know, for example, um, you know, what is the mythology of a typical conservative versus a typical liberal? Could you speak a little bit more about that? What, what do you see as the mythologies as they are and how are they being crafted? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I think, I mean, I think if you go to its core, like the idea of a, of a story or mythology, a lot of it's about common experience. Um, so the reason why you, know, you take a country like the United States, which is relatively young and is, is largely populated over people who have immigrated here over the last 250 to 300 years in their descendants, you don't have a lot of common, a ton of common history. So, the reason why this sort of mythology of anyone can come here and, and succeed is appealing is because it gives everyone something of a common experience. Um, I think when you break it down a little further and go into different, you know, maybe subgroups of that, uh, whether it's, you know, ethnic or political or, or anything like that, um, anything that's sort of developing in, in belief structure and all of that, I think it's all about giving people like a common experience and a way to relate to each other. And so it's not just necessarily political, conservative, or liberal, but it can be based on religious lines, ethnic lines, um, you know, how people choose to kind of group together where they live, why they live. I think it's really what it boils down to is just giving people some sort of common experience to relate to the people around them. And I think um, a lot of what we're seeing that's leading to um, a lot of the problems we have in our government is that people are dividing themselves or separating physically to where they're um, developing separate mythologies that it used to be, I think that people could um, find more commonality, more of those sort of common mythologies 
um, within their community, within their daily interactions. And now we're at a point where a lot, for example, the military, for example, um, people who are part of military families, um, because there's no longer, you know, uh, you're no longer forced to go and, you know, serve, there's no draft that these people are, are sort of growing up with an entirely different set of experiences and a different set of, um, values. And, um, and there's sort of a, a culture that develops around that. And you can certainly have talking points that really appeals to those types of people. And that's why we run veterans. That's why we, you know, have certain, uh, military and veteran language that we have. And, um, and now we end up in a world where finding that one talking point, that one sort of refrain that you can use that will somehow appeal to every single voter or 90% of people is getting more and more difficult in my opinion. It's extremely difficult and it may be, it may be on some level impossible at this point. Man, can you sort of, and sort of talking about how do we come up with the message and how do we craft it? Can you sort of explain to us, you know, we know Donald Trump's a little bit different and does his own thing, but the typical politician, can you explain to us sort of the journey that it takes, um, a campaign sort of to create its message, uh, to conceive of it. And then all the way up to the point where, uh, the candidates delivering it and maybe other allies and, um, stakeholders are joining in in a chorus, um, on the same talking points. My favorite's always, you know, back on the Obama campaign, you somehow ended up with the candidate saying something in a speech. And the next thing you know, everybody on television is saying the exact same thing. And then uh, next thing you know, it ends up on volunteer phone scripts um, calling uh, undecided voters saying the exact same lines word for word. How does that happen? Yeah, I mean, I think so there's no I wouldn't say that there's any like map or you know, roadmap that has to be followed in terms of um, developing a message. I think that there's a few things, though, that you kind of always are are looking for some sort of basic pillars. So one of the things that that if I'm sitting down with someone who's interested in running for office kind of for the first time, maybe um, one of the first places that I always think is the best place to start is biography. Um, you want to know who this person is, what their background is, what their life experiences is, uh, life experiences are, what do they do for a living? Uh, how they got there. I think bio biography is a really, um, it's a really important place to start uh, because you can also find a lot of pieces of people's biography that ends up being broadly relatable. So a lot of times you'll hear candidates talk about, for example, like, oh, you know, I came from a blue collar family. Uh, you know, my dad worked at whatever the local plant, mill, factory, whatever. Um, you know, my mom, maybe she didn't work, maybe she worked as a secretary, she worked as a teacher, something like that. Um, you know, it was sort of like this, this relatable family experience. I put myself through college, um, went out and, you know, joined the military or whatever. And, and it sort of became, you know, and then I turned it into, I turned it into a career and I went from there. I think that biography is a, is a really important place, uh, to start because that's how you kind of find out who someone is. Next, I think you have to kind of just ask them, you know, talk to candidates, like, what do you care about? Why are you doing this? What are you interested in? I mean, are you the person who 
decided to run for office because you decided to run for school board because something happened with your kid's school and it infuriated you and, you know, you decided you had to get involved or is it, you know, a community issue or what is it that kind of sparked your interest in running and got you to do this because running for any office isn't easy. So there has to be some sort of, people don't just jump into it for the sake of jumping into it usually. I mean, there's some sort of motivating factor there. So understanding, you know, kind of what that is. And then I think you kind of look at what do you think that whatever your target population is, so whether it's, you know, your local city, town, council, all the way up to a national election for U.S. Senator or President of the United States, something like that. What is it that you think uh, is going on in the world or, or sort of in this community? And what do you think people care about? Um, and I think that those are kind of the pillars that you always have to start with. Uh, to get a sense of, of how do you build that message? Yeah. So for me, you know, coming at it from, you know, data and analytics perspective, I always think about, um, you know, what does it say in the numbers? What's the population like? What's the makeup, the, the racial breakdown? What's the, you know, uh, geographic makeup? Uh, what, who are their employers? Um, and then sort of how do we test this? How do we, you know, get some qual- uh, quantitative feedback um, what you're saying all sounds so, you know, off the cuff. So, you know, what's our intuition? How does, how I guess, how do you sort of marry that sort of intuitive gut instinct with actual like results, actual feedback, mm-hmm. and um, and sort of quantitative results? Yeah, and I think you you have to get to the sort of the quantitative side at some point. I think first you have to know, you sort of have to know your candidate and why they're doing what they're doing and, and sort of how they got to where they are today. I think, and, and, and what your sense is of what's important to the community that you're trying to speak to. Um, I think that, you know, and for a local city council race, that may be enough. You know, you may never do uh, quantitative research to kind of really dig into what a different, you know, segments of voters think um, when you get to bigger races obviously uh, more time and money is invested in them uh, you're dealing with broader populations and so it makes sense to invest into quantitative research so at that point i think you're moving into the realm of you know here are here are 10 or 12 different things that we think are appealing um, you know it's time to put together a focus grouping let's talk to actual people who live here let's see how they react to these different themes uh, phrases things of the sort, you know, a candidate's bio, let's, let's consider doing a poll where we actually go through and we just ask a representative sample of the voters that we are, you know, going to have to appeal to. What do you think about these things? Um, and I think you just have to ultimately sort of, you, you know, your, your kind of early intuitive self-research informs and, and your sort of gut instinct on, on what matters to your community ultimately informs the themes that you will be testing in maybe a more quantitative and traditionally qualitative, uh, you know, kind of setup. Yeah. And do you think when you're sort of crafting this message from your instincts, but say you get that quantitative feedback that might be a little bit different and you've got to sort of modulate your tone and modulate your, your message, do you think it's more important for a candidate to sort of remain authentic to their personality or try to stretch themselves to appeal to a wider base. We certainly saw that between Donald Trump, you know, and Hillary Clinton or even Bernie Sanders and Hillary, you know, one candidate 
was working so hard to, um, you know, appeal to a wider base and the other, you know, remained authentic to their personality and ran hard to their, to their roots. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's, you have to strike a balance here. Um, I mean, you have to, you have to understand who, who your voters are and what they care about. And you can't just ignore that. At the same time, you can't be so deep into the mindset of, I'm just going to go wherever the data kind of tells me to go that you lose whatever it is, you know, whatever it is, that voice that, that caused you to want to do this as a candidate in the first place. Um, Sanders, Sanders Clinton is an interesting example. Uh, when you look into like a democratic primary electorate, for example, you know, one of the biggest blocks of voters in a democratic primary as you move state by state are African Americans, particularly African American women. Uh, I think one of Sanders big weaknesses was that he never learned how to talk very well and connect with that community. And it hurt him in a lot of states. It hurt him in South Carolina and throughout the South. I think it hurt him in some of the urban, uh, urban Northeast where there's pockets of strong pockets of African American voters. So there's an example of a candidate who, you know, Bernie Sanders has been saying the same types of things for the 35 to almost 40 years that he's been in public life. Um, so he, he's certainly authentic and stayed true to himself kind of throughout the campaign. But I right. think and in I would some say, respects, he set himself he back. Have, he might have by and large lost because he was unable to appeal to African-Americans and African-American women. If he could have gotten like picked off a little bit more of that base, he could have won. Absolutely. I think if he'd have improved his improved his performance in the in the primaries in the South, South Carolina, and and they really just seeded the South. They didn't even really compete in the rest of those states, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia. Um, you know, if he had if he had gone in and fought for those voters, but done it in a way that wasn't just repeating his standard line and actually learned to talk to them a little bit, he may very well have pulled out enough delegates in, in those states that he would have had enough ultimately down the road um, to win the whole thing and win the nomination. So I think there's a very good example of someone who is state authentic. Um, you cannot say that Bernie Sanders is not authentic to the person that he's always been, but because maybe they chose not to stretch themselves at least a little bit, they sacrificed uh, that broader appeal they needed to win. So is that just a strategy point? Is this just something where we need to, you know, tell tell the people working in a campaign, hey, here's what typically works? Is it, you know, it seems like that's more of an intuitive judgment call where the people of the campaign were just sitting around and saying, well, he seems to be authentic. And if people like that, they're going to like that. And maybe they liked it. And that's why they're working for him. Right. Is it? Yeah. I, you know, anything is anything is susceptible to confirmation bias. Right. Um, you know, you get a bunch of people who want to believe a certain thing and they will see things that confirm that. Um, I think that's part of the reason why in campaigns it's important to have as, as much as you can, like some diverse people sitting at the table, um, and not, you know, necessarily diverse as in like beyond any particular racial, ethnic, religious, whatever lines, but just people who are going to kind of bring different perspectives and opinions, um, when you're crafting when you're crafting a strategy like that, um, you know, I think some of it was they thought they had a message was working and they just saw a certain path to victory and decided they were going to try to uh, stick that out. But, you know, it, 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 some of it's a strategic decision. Some of it's candidates. Some candidates just, they've got a shtick and they're not changing it. Um, 
So, you know, I don't, I don't know if you can always pinpoint it on one particular thing, but I do think that if you were to, if the Sanders campaign were to sort of do a deep dive on why they lost, they would probably be willing to tell you that not connecting with a certain pockets of voters really hurt them. But here's the thing too, is that what could he have done? Like what, if he had changed his message, what would he have changed it to? And would that have been seen as authentic or would it have come off as pandering or as, you know, uh, selling out or, you know, would he get dinged for no longer being the authentic candidate that was so appealing in the first place? I think, I think like anything, there, there's a right and a wrong way to do it. And I mean, I think that the right way to do it is to figure out, and, and again, this takes some research and some, you know, maybe some good focus grouping and some polling, but, but figure out how that, how to talk about the things that you care about in a way that connects with that audience. So, you know, one of Bernie's biggest issues was, it was and continues to be sort of universal healthcare, Medicare for all. Um, there, there has to be a way, you know, it's not like Latinos or African Americans or different groups of people are, are not healthcare voters. They, they very much care about these issues. So it's just a matter of figuring out how do you, how do you get them, you know, engaged with what you're saying? You know, Sanders is an interesting person. I think years ago he was president, you know, when he was a young activist, president civil rights marches in the sixties. I can't recall them ever going out and talking about that in a very big way, which to me seems kind of ridiculous because it's a way to sort of show a long-term, lifelong commitment to issues that are important to a huge segment of the Democratic voter base. Um, and, and, and this goes back to the point of when you dig into someone's biography, you find things that maybe make them relatable. There's stuff in Sanders' biography that would make him more relatable to these pockets of voters, and as near as I can tell, his campaign just didn't use them. Right, and I, I, the rumor I always heard was that Sanders refused to talk about himself very much, to actually dig into his own biography um, for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And, and that's tough because people on an, there's like an intrinsic level of people, they, they want to believe in what you believe in, but they also want to believe in you as a person. Right. And people are fascinated with that. So when we have something like, um, you know, Bernie Sanders uh, line that was disseminated a a little bit was the idea of democratic socialism. And, you know, I'm I'm really curious about that one because that's that's a um, that's a particular point that was clearly done deliberately. And yet, did they really check that out? I think that that turned a lot of people off. What do you think about that? Yeah, so this idea of democratic socialism, um, it's funny because I think it's actually something that he, a phrase he used more like a a longer time ago um, than he's used more recently. You know, they were, he has always sort of self-described himself, I think, as a democratic socialist. I mean, it's one of the reasons why he's generally stayed a political independent is because he didn't think that the Democratic Party truly represented his belief structure. He agreed with some of it, but not all of it. Um, but during the presidential campaign, they didn't use the word socialism a whole bunch. Uh, I think probably out of some recognition that that, that word is still tied to you know, Cold War-esque feelings about communism and, and all of that. However, 
it's no secret that Bernie Sanders is long time described himself as kind of a, a democratic socialism or democratic socialist. And I think that as, you know, certain generations get older, particularly the Cold War generation get older, some of those people start to die and you have more and more of the voting population that was either born after or doesn't really remember much about the Cold War era. The, you know, throwing around the word socialist or socialism as, as an attack loses a little bit of its luster. Did we find that um, Clinton actually pulled better against those type of people? Because I would imagine so that her message would be crafted toward that um, higher age group. You know, I think that she did. I mean, I think that amongst Democratic primary voters or whatever, and, and I don't have exact numbers in front of me, but generally she did better amongst um, older voters and voters of color. Uh, I think Sanders did better amongst maybe voters who identified as being a little more leftist and uh, a lot of younger voters. Um, and some of that may have to do with with exactly what you're talking about and the fact that these older voters, even liberal Democratic older voters, just have this sort of conditioned, averse reaction to the idea of quote-unquote socialism, um, whereas younger voters who were not alive during the Cold War have no memory of it, it it's kind of meaningless to them. They see it as better health care, better options for education, you know, better opportunity. Now, one thing I that comes to mind here when we're talking about the difference between age of the of the bases. I remember back um, at the end of 2015, um, Hillary was doing quite well going into the end of the year, going into the holidays, and um, then Thanksgiving happened, and then Christmas happened, and then we come back into and and Hanukkah, and uh, we come back into the new year. And suddenly we see this giant shift in polls toward Bernie among the older voters. And, um, and I think that really reinforces, um, you know, a conversation Taylor and I have been having about the influence on family members within the household. And that my personal theory is that all of these college kids that were living in their little college bubbles for the entirety of the primary finally go home for the winter break and are engaged and are sitting down around the Thanksgiving dinner table with their, you know, older, you know, less committed, um, family members who at that point might've been like, yeah, Hillary, I like Hillary. I voted for her before. I'll go do it again. And now they've got their child or their, you know, their younger college kid relative, um, going on and on and on about Bernie Sanders. And next thing you know, um, when we start polling again after the holidays, uh, we've got this massive shift. And um, I thought that that was really interesting and has been sort of my pet theory the entire time. I mean, it's certainly, I would say that's certainly possible. Um, family, you know, family influence is huge uh, in kind of shaping people's political opinions. And, you know, that's this is one of those mysteries, Alex, we'll probably never get to test, but you should just continue to run with it. <laughs> So how do we deal with these types of upsets where one thing is expected by a campaign, but then something else just just comes in out of out of the woodwork? So, for example, in the Republican primaries, one of the big things was Donald Trump's framing of his opponents. So um, 
he would cast them in a certain light, you know, like he's been doing with Elizabeth Warren with the Pocahontas, you know, comment. Um, he casts them in a certain light and frames them with these one word descriptions. And the thing that he did with um, some candidates, you know, so, for example, like Jeb Bush, um, he would frame them in this particular way and effectively alter the narrative around that message and to do it in a very public way. How does a campaign actually um, change or shift, you know, from that point, that point in time where already their main point has been kind of um, uh, poisoned, the well's been poisoned a little bit. They need to be able to pivot away from that or frame it in a different way. How does that happen? Yeah, um, Trump Trump pulled off some stuff that I don't think that a lot of people had had ever really seen before, including sort of these these kind of one liner zingers um, that ended up, you know, sort of throttling uh, certain candidates. I think the one that's obviously the most the most apparent is when he called Jeb Bush low energy. And part of the problem with, I mean, part of the reason why that worked is because he was right, right? Like, I mean, Jeb Bush was boring um and not compelling and you know very almost kind of like dour in in his campaign appearances um and you know he just trump just he sensed it and he kind of nailed him for it and you know i think what trump understood to a certain extent and he used the republican primary debate to his advantage really really well on this because for a long time they he wasn't really campaigning he was just showing up at these republican primary debates is you know kind of how to create the the sort of media spectacle and the media circus of it all and the entertainment value uh, that comes from that so when you get hit with something like that um on the other side you know the bush people never figured out uh a way a way to kind of recover they sort of tried to brush past it um but you know nothing nothing ever came of it he attacked marco rubio he called him little marco um and marco rubio you know kind of tried to fight back with his own sort of you know making fun of donald trump in a way attacking it and it fell very flat um the warren thing where he's repeatedly kind of used what is essentially racist native american language against her you know, she's turned around and used that to her advantage to fundraise and, and do other things about it. So, I mean, I think it's, there's no like clear cut way on, on how to respond to it. Um, I think that on some level though, when, when you have someone who kind of tries to brand you like that, you just have to think about how to use it to your advantage. I'm sure Elizabeth Warren sending out fundraising emails to her list, talking about how Donald Trump had used essentially racist language to describe her, raised her quite a bit of money, um, for her campaign. So when we take something like that, when we have a a candidate like Jeb Bush, who clearly has some things that he needs to work on, it's been pointed out, you know, to him in that way. We of course have whatever that candidate comes in with when they first decide to start running. Which factors do you think are trainable, and what are, what are the main ones that are trainable? Like, are there consultants that sit down and say, okay, this person needs to use. Um, this particular body language. So, you know, for example, one of the things that's oftentimes done is that a lot of politicians, instead of pointing with their finger, they're taught to kind of bring their knuckle in and just point with their knuckle. I don't know if you all have seen this. Like, mm -hmm. that's that's a really common body language thing. 
you know, or how about something like the impacts of how they use their voice or their speech patterns, the types of phrasing, or even just getting rid of their, their nervous energy, right? Because, you know, when we talk about public speaking, sometimes people can have nervous energy. What sort of things are done in terms of training those people up and uh, how much of it do you think is trainable and how much of it is just, this is who you've got and we're not going to be able to do that much about it? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think there is a, you know, you, you, you start with whatever your baseline is. Um, some people are born brilliantly charismatic and, you know, even the, even those people require training, but some people are just born brilliantly charismatic and some people are born, you know, just dull. Um, <laughs> and a lot of people fall somewhere kind of in, in the middle. Um, I think that the larger scale of a campaign in which you are going to be running and working, the more you are likely to invest resources in the types of things you're talking about. Body language is a common one. I think there's a lot of research out there that tells you, you know, what types of body language do people find welcoming? What types of people do body language do people find, you know, it's more closed off or it's more threatening or it's more negative. Um, that type of stuff is generally pretty easy uh, to coach people through. Working on the way you speak is definitely something, um, you know, tone of voice, intonation, cadence, all of that. I mean, there, there's, there are a multitude of experts out there who can be hired to work with you on that. The getting rid of anxiety or nerves one is an interesting question because it reminds me of like my 10th grade speech class when our teacher told us like, okay, right before you're getting ready to speak, you know, the, the best thing to do is to you know, strongly grip the sides of the podium and then take a deep breath and it releases a lot of nervous, you know, energy. And then you can just kind of focus on what you need to say. I think there are a lot of well-practiced politicians who do still get nervous giving, giving big speeches. But again, you know, speech debate, these types of things have been going on for centuries. There's a lot of little like tricks and strategies that you can learn um, to kind of help you release that energy and, and get focused on, um, you know, what you need to do. And a lot of it is just practice. I mean, the politicians, when they speak, are routinely giving, going up and giving the same speech, a stump speech, um, over and over and over again, to the point where it's, they're just sort of in a, a flow. They get up, they know exactly what they're supposed to be doing. They say it, they do it, they're done. They hop back in the car and it's on to the next event. Um, and so I think that a lot of practice and repetition and all of that helps in all this as well. Or they could just get a good hypnotist. Or they could get um, a good hypnotist, which, you know, you two, you two might know a few. But uh, joking aside, though, I do think there's a serious point in here, too. And that is, you ever notice how politicians, especially, I think, on the Democratic side recently, have really started always walking out to the exact same song. Like, we've got Hillary Clinton always walked out to fight song. And mm -hmm. um, Barack Obama always walked out to the sign sealed delivered. Um, and a lot of that, I think, is some powerful anchoring, um, sort of a hypnotic technique right there of not only for the audience. So fight song always brings back a certain emotion, a certain feeling, a certain anticipatory feeling or whatever it is among certain people and they're now associating feelings through classical conditioning that Pavlovian repetition to feel a certain way when they hear that song. And then I think a lot of that can be used for the candidate as well, 
to get them psyched up about getting out there on that stage and giving that speech, knowing that they're hearing that song and it brings back that certain feeling of a successful speech of, of calmness, of security, of determination of whatever it is sort of using that to train both the audience and the candidate and Taylor, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Well, yeah. And, and that's, Using music to uh, classically condition that response, which, you know, this is the idea that you have a trigger and then a, a feeling, an emotion, a response automatically happens. That's, that's so, um, it's, it's a really typical thing that, that can happen. Music is a great way to do it at the beginning of a speech because you get everyone kind of rallied up. And if they've heard it before, they've been to those type of events before, then it becomes associated with the particular politician it becomes associated with them you know what else do we see in terms of classical conditioning things like campaign slogans logos um but we see it with body language um we see it with speech and intonation patterns and actually this is something that when we talk about the um the state of the union and particularly we had uh the democratic's response to the state of the union so we had uh joe kennedy who who did that and you know it was all carefully staged he's got like this um car hoisted up on a jack behind him because there was the it was done at some technical school or something and it was such a rehearsed speech and i think that what happens is with that when someone has so much of a rehearsed speech that um the people who really like that message are going to still hear the message but then there are others who are going to say, well, this is just the Democrats doing that rehearsal thing again. And I think when Donald Trump came out to kind of bulldoze his way past all the convention, that was, in a, in a sense, the more he broke the rules, the more he was just appealing to his base. And you know, I'm curious to hear what you all you know, have to say about that as well. No, I mean, I think that there's a, there's a lot of truth in, in what you're saying there. I think Trump... Trump is an interesting example because you're right. <laughs> Bulldoze the convention is is exactly the way to describe how he approached uh, how he approached politics. But I think that he sensed whether it was intuition or whether it was because you know Trump. What a lot of people don't remember about Trump is that for years he's been going on weird right wing talk radio and he's been in this sort of other media universe that most of the rest of us don't really know about. But this like core segment of of hardcore right-wing people are very much in tune with. Um, and he's been out there for years. So whether it was, you know, he sort of sensed it by gut instinct or by just making, being out in that ecosystem so much, he just gathered enough anecdotal evidence that he knew what was going to work. Um, but yeah, he definitely sort of bulldozed past convention. And every time he did it, it, it worked for him with that segment that he needed because those people were just they were almost to a point where they just wanted to see things smashed for the sake of smashing them. Um, and you know, whatever that anger and anxiety and, and it was all sort of directed at the quote unquote establishment institutions, whether it's the media politics or whatever. Um, and they just wanted to see that stuff smashed. And so the, the more that he kind of broke through it, you know, it, it's dressed up in this guise of him being authentic, but I think a lot of it was just playing to what these people wanted to hear. You know, you hear the, the, the name of your podcast uh, reminds me of this because one of the things that you constantly hear complaints about in sort of the right wing media ecosystem is political correctness and PC culture. 
And so he knew that those people wanted someone who was just going to smash that to pieces. And so that's exactly what he did. And so that sort of leads to another question here is um, how careful are politicians to make sure not to do the opposite, not to offend people with their messaging? And um, like how purposeful is that? Um, and sort of the future, like, where is all of this going? Um, are we going to end up in the world of, you know, Donald Trump rule breaking new form of political communication, or are we going to fall back to, um, the, the Hillary Clinton, you know, aircraft carrier, uh, campaign (laughs) sort of, uh, uh, plow ahead with the same, the same old. Um, I I think you'll probably see people try both. I mean, listen, like anytime someone is successful doing something, there are going to be imitators, right? So people are going to look at that kind of the Trump style of campaign and try to imitate it. Uh, whether, whether that's something that other people can pull off or whether he was uniquely positioned to do it, I think remains to be seen. As a general rule, it is always safer to try to avoid offending people for no reason. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean that you don't, that you don't want to stake out positions that are going to, you know, motivate the people that you want to motivate solely because, oh, that might be offensive to a group of people, particularly if it's a group of people that you aren't really thinking you're going to need to rely on anyway. But what's your personal take? What is your personal opinion on whether or not the Donald Trump style is is going to be a successful long-term um, method? I think that, I think stylistically, it'll be hard to replicate because I think on some level, people will sense that it is, a, that it is an imitation. Um, you know, Trump did it. He kind of smashed through and all this. And I think for as long as he's around, it's going to be... Um, because, because I think that exactly what you're talking about in, in being too, what we were talking about earlier and being too practiced, like there will be politicians now who are practicing trying to be unpracticed in the way that Donald Trump is. And that will come off as being very obvious and, and inauthentic. And people will sense that and they won't, they won't really go, uh, go for it. Now, content wise, however, um, you know, in, in sort of the, the substance of the rhetoric that he's talking about, I think is going to be around to stay amongst Republican politicians for quite some time. All right. Um, I think that is about it, that all that we have time for today. Um, thank you so much, uh, Peter, for joining us. Um, this is a fascinating discussion. Um, love to have you back um, eventually to talk a, a little bit more in depth about um, some of these other issues. Yeah, absolutely. We, let's do it after 2018 and we'll see if anything I said was right. <laughs> so do you think yeah. that, uh, do you think at 2018, uh, what do you think is, is going to happen 2018? Quick prediction. I think that you're likely to see pretty significant gains uh, for Democrats across the board. I think there's a lot of historical data that suggests that that's true. And I think that there's, you, you know, Trump for all of his ability to soak up the oxygen remains historically unpopular. Um, and I think that his lack of discipline, um, will kind of help continue, uh, continue that unpopularity. And I think that ultimately people are going to make the conscientious decision that they, they'd rather see more divided government and more of the two parties essentially in a position to check each other, um, 
in, in maybe order to contain everyone's everyone's worst impulses. So I think you're likely to see some, I won't, I won't put numbers on it, but you're likely to see some pretty significant democratic gains in 2018. Very cool. All right. Thanks, Peter. We'll talk with you. Talk with you later. Thank you very much. That's it for this week. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook and visit our website at subliminallycorrect.com. And if you really love the show and want to contribute, visit our Patreon in the show notes and become a friend of the show. Thanks again and tune in next time.